Hello, my name is Stephen Wozniak, and I'm the guest host of Art World, the White Hot Magazine of Contemporary Art Podcast, featuring lively discussions with innovative and engaging fine artists, thought leaders, and active creatives about contemporary art and culture, which is available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. I'm delighted to have New York-based fine art curator, arts writer, and educator Dan Cameron with us on the Art World Podcast today. Dan's public career began in 1982 with Extended Sensibilities, a new Museum of Contemporary Art exhibition that was the first institutional effort in the U.S. to examine gay and lesbian identity in art. In the intervening four decades, Cameron has held senior curatorial positions at the aforementioned New Museum, Orange County Museum of Art, and Contemporary Art Center of New Orleans. He's organized more than 100 exhibitions, including the major surveys of Martin Wong, David Wojnarowicz, Faith Ringold, Carolee Schneemann, William Kentridge, Peter Saul, Paul McCarthy, and Sildo Mureles. In 2008, Cameron founded and organized the first two editions of Prospect New Orleans, the contemporary art triennial that benefited the city after Hurricane Katrina, and recently concluded its successful fifth edition. He's organized numerous biennials and other major exhibitions around the world, from Taipei to New York City. He's also authored hundreds of published texts on contemporary art, as well as taught and lectured at numerous notable museums and universities. More recently, Cameron's book on Nicole Eisenman's painting was published in October of 2021 by Lund Humphreys, as well as catalog and book texts since late 2020 on Flavio Siqueira, John Willen Becker, Cifredo Chacon, Sight Lab, and the Jacksonville Museum of Contemporary Art's Atrium Project series. A mid-career survey of Leandro Ehrlich's sculpture will open at Perez Art Museum Miami in December 2022, along with the first full-length publication in English on the artist's work written by Cameron. Welcome to the show, Dan. You were born in Utica in upstate New York, but you moved around a few times variously to Virginia, Ohio, Kentucky, and back to upstate New York in the tiny town of Hudson Falls. What was it like growing up there, and what were your first forays into the arts? Sure. Well, when I was a kid, um, Hudson Falls was where our, my, my grandmother lived, my, mom, my mother's mother. Right. And we would go there for vacations. It was a it was a place that you know you we'd normally visit for like a week in July, right? Um, and after my parents divorced, when we moved there permanently, it was just like oh great, because right. with the exception of maybe Dayton, Ohio, we had never lived in a place long enough to really get to know it. And when we moved to Hudson Falls, then we were, you know, settling in. We were with family. We were in yeah. a familiar place. Um, you know, it's a, it was a, basically a mill town in front and a kind of agrarian out back. You know, we're, right. we're on the Hudson River, but very close to the Vermont border. Right. Um, and my first exposure to art was probably the Hyde Collection, the local museum mm -hmm. in Glens Falls, mm -hmm. which, among other things, has a, you know, a decent Rembrandt, um, young mm -hmm. Christ with folded arms. But right. when I was a junior in high school, they had an exhibition called uh, David Smith of Bolton Landing. Wow. 
because if they just called it David Smith, nobody would have gone probably. <laughs> but, but, but the but the identification, the, the idea that you know, oh, a local hero, like a local a local kid, a local local guy made good, yeah, uh, right, and made it big in the mainstream, yeah, made it made it big, and so I went to see that show, and it was really eye opening. I I'd never sort of experienced anything quite like it. I mean, I'd followed art indirectly you know i bought books about art or i you know i was interested in art i i, I right you know when picasso died that was a big sort of thing for me because guernica Absolutely. appeared on the front page of my local newspaper yeah and i was like what what is this who's pablo picasso you know there was yeah. uh, that all happened at that time um and and so i guess I mean, I, that got me started. That exhibition, David Smith, yeah. Golden Landing, got me started. It's so funny. I had coffee on Friday afternoon with the current chief curator of the Hyde Collection. Oh, how funny. Know, who, who's, who's now up here because I have this space down the street from him. And we've yeah. known each other now for, for, for years. So, you know, there was definitely a coming back home aspect to yeah. finding this particular space that I right. have up there and, and renting it and starting to use it full time. Not full you know, time, one sorry, thing, but, but when I'm there. Well, on, on a regular basis. Yeah. I mean, at, at least to hunker but, yeah. down to prepare for major projects and to, you know, write the many tomes you've written. Um, one thing I think a lot of listeners don't know is that there is a remarkable fine art museum, the Munson Williams Proctor Arts Institute Museum of Art from your hometown. Did you and the family ever make the two hour drive to check out the work there? Or was that just out of the question at the time? No, we only lived, I mean, by the time we left Utica, I was the baby. So I never really knew Utica. Um, Got in fact, it. I don't Got know it. the Munson Williams uh, collection. I did Got go it. to uh, school for a couple of years in Syracuse. Right. But even so, Utica just, no, it never appeared yeah. on my radar. It, never, it just wasn't on your map. Um, well, I know it's called of... the Handshake City, and I know that yeah. Annette Funicello is from Utica, but that's kind is of that right? the limit of my knowledge. <laughs> and one of my best friends to, to this day, yeah. um, who I met in Hudson Falls, was born in the same hospital in Utica that I was How born funny. in. So How funny. small world. It's a, it's a, it is a small world. So Dan, at the top of the show, I outlined many of the projects you engaged in recently. And that's a great deal of artwork and a large number of artists to review, analyze, and ultimately write about in such a relatively short period of time. Have you always worked at this rapid pace and high volume? I mean, especially considering the acute detail of signature content I know you always deliver. I mean, this isn't a swan song effort, right, Dan? Well, I think, um, I mean, I always wrote. Writing was what I felt was my most natural medium when I was growing up. And, and my English teachers were the teachers, you know, who I most, you know, look for their approval. Right. Um, and I was a very avid reader, you know, I was a spiritual searcher, you know, and, and, and so I feel like I was happy with writing, but I didn't really have a subject, I guess would be the correct way of saying it. And it wasn't right. until I guess I got to Bennington College. And I remember the moment, actually, I was reading this text that Michael Fried had written about Morris Lewis, mm -hmm. where he was talking about how the staining Mm -hmm. of the canvas mm -hmm. resulted in molecular transformations <laughs> that were not visible to the naked eye but were uh -huh. occurring in the in the structure of the threads of the canvas right. wow. and i just remember 
like reading this passage, like two or three paragraphs over and over again. And it was yeah. right around the same time that I was also discovering Robert Smithson's writings uh -huh. because he had, he had, he had died earlier. And, right. and I just, it hit me that writing about art was a way of writing. <laughs> I mean, it sounds right. really dumb to say it that way now, but that even though some people seem to do other things and also mm -hmm. write about art, that it was possible to write about art. Exclusively. Maybe not exclusively, because what I really wanted to do yeah. was curate. Right. But if writing could be sort of a vehicle or, or a way of making curatorial projects happen, that right. I was game for that as well. Right, which you learned was an important part of proposals. <laughs> yeah, so and I grants and all the other things that go with it. Yeah, my first job in the art world, my second job in the art world was as a grant writer. Um, yeah, you know, and yeah. writing press releases for the Gray Art Gallery. You know, yeah. so I had I immediately got thrown into this idea where it wasn't editorial writing. Right. But, um, I was quickly invited by Richard Martin whose name is mm -hmm. maybe familiar to some people. He was the editor of Arts Magazine for you know, a very long time. And he basically guaranteed me a, a monthly slot. He said, if you have enough material for me to run a feature every right. issue of the year, I will right. do that. I will give you that much space. Uh, in the magazines and that was a super that was in 1983 that was a huge affirmation at that point in my life that i was like wow i guess i'm a writer take us back to your early entry into the established new york art world or even just prior to the new museum extended sensibility show that puts you on the map after graduating with a bachelor of arts degree from bennington college in 79 did you move right into new york city what was happening for you during those formative years and what were you doing for work? What was the emerging cultural art scene like? And who were your personal heroes, artists, writers, curators, institutions coming up in the early 80s in New York City? Well, I was lucky enough to have a side gig early on as the private secretary to John Nashbury. Um, mm. And even though John Nashbury is a great poet, he was also a working art critic. Mm -hmm. And I was clearly, you know, studying how he approached things and his way of working. Right. And also just sort of trying to figure out what the obligations were, you know, for right. an art critic. And, and one of the things that I picked up on right away was that uh, the art world is your field work you know, that the gallery scene, the alternative space scene, and then the museum scene, that is how you inform yourself. That's how you do your primary research into your field in order to give you the tools and the knowledge, mm -hmm. you know, to make exhibitions. And if you're not doing that, then you're not really sort of In properly engaged. equipped. You, you have yeah. to be very conversational about all kinds of minutiae and details about yeah. You know, the arts, the art, not the art world as such, um, but the content of the art system. Like, what is the art being shown at any right. given time? Right. And, you know, that really, so it wasn't so much people that I was looking at, although John was certainly someone to admire. Sure. Marsha Tucker was someone I also admired. But I think I was looking more at sort of places. I mean, you have to understand, this was the explosion of the no-wave 
music scene. So, it, right. you know, every, everybody had a band. Post-punk, yeah. Band. Right. Yeah, it was post-punk. And so if you didn't have a band, you really weren't participating, you know? Right. And, and, and so the whole what was your band like? gallery scene was exploding. We were yeah. post-punk, <laughs> just like yeah, yeah. everyone else. It was sort of noise, but sophisticated with, yeah, yeah. you know, some kind of strange approaches to cover songs. Um, yeah. And then we ended up, you know, writing a lot of our own material. But it was sort of, I mean, I hate to use the word zeitgeist, but that's what it was. It was yeah. how you participated. And, you know, everybody spent a lot of time at clubs mm -hmm. because it, I felt like, you know, between what was being performed at Danceteria or, um, you know, the Ritz or- Mud Club. To, the Mud, well, the Mud Club wasn't so much a music place. The Mud Club was a, was a hangout place. Got it. Um, the Got music it. place next to the Mud Club was called TR3. And that was mm -hmm. a super serious music bar. I was mm -hmm. into jazz. I was, I've always been into free mm -hmm. jazz. So yeah, there was the whole- um, sort of Bowery scene of the loft jazz movement that mm -hmm. was on at that time. And there are an amazing number of jazz places to go to hear performance. Yeah. You know, you go to things at Irving Plaza. It just, mm -hmm. you know, the hip hop scene in the South Bronx was really was blowing moving up, yeah. down. It was, yeah, it was moving downtown in really yeah. explicit ways. So it's like, you'd wait until, you know, uh, you know, Run DMC or Africa Mambada or some, you know, group of, of hip hop artists were being built at the Ritz and then you'd go see them there, you know, right. as opposed to just going to the South Bronx. Right. But then, you know, Fashion Moda, made going to the South Bronx, you know, cool. obli obligatory. Well, for me, yeah. it was obligatory because you didn't know. Sure. Was so sure. I was so awestruck by like walking into fun gallery, you know, it didn't right. matter. It didn't matter if Basquiat was hanging around. It didn't matter if Keith Haring was hanging around. It didn't matter. Right. I was starstruck by all of it. It was the event of it. Just all, yeah. all, everything, every person that yeah, was hanging yeah, around yeah. fun yeah, gallery, yeah. everything on the wall. It, yeah. it was all just amazing. The Times Square show, which happened yeah. at the same time was sort of just a phenomenon, but it was a, it was a shift. It, it yeah. made a really important that, change it, of direction it, in the New York it, scene. A very big mark. I'm gonna skip ahead before I get sure. into your work as a curator. Okay, at the wizened age of 64, you began to exhibit your own art primarily collage work in 2020. I understand that you made art in your 20s just prior to your first decade as a curator. How did your practice as an artist evolve over time? Well, it's the same work. I mean, that's what's weird about it. And not only is, is it the same work, I was having lunch with a friend of mine today. And it yeah. reminded me that when I set aside my art making materials when I was I don't know, 32, something like that, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, at the very end of the 80s, it was a question of not having time and mm -hmm. needing to prioritize because I wasn't sure that the being, cure, being a curator thing was ever going to work out. And hmm. then it started working out. And I was like, oh right. my God, I, I have to totally shift my focus. Yeah. I don't have time for activities that simply give me pleasure if I'm not professionally oriented in that direction, you know, like, right, right. You know, it's not the same as cooking at home. You know what I mean? You no, no, no. Eat, but, but art making, right. it's like you do it either if you have time or if that's your vocation, you know, there's Absolutely. Not really other, other explanations for it. And I yeah. didn't really, it didn't really seem to be my vocation in the same way that curating did. And so, uh, and I needed all that time 
to, to be curating. So I had a residency. I mean, the short answer, it's not so short, but I had a residency at the Hermitage in Florida, right. in Inglewood, Florida, uh, yeah. two, three week residencies bracketed by uh, a year. And um, I kind of knew what I was up to. <laughs> I mean, I've got mm-hmm. materials, I prepped for making collages, but what I had in mind was that I was incorporating Abby Warburg, the mm-hmm. um, German art historian who was very you know, well-known for putting together his sort of visual lexicon of iconography. Mm-hmm. And I told myself at the time that what mm-hmm. I was going to do was make his experiments visible, that I was gonna to try to replicate what he was doing. But by day three or day four, yeah. Once I had physically gone back to making stuff again, making pictures, mm-hmm. making collages, mm-hmm. all any other excuse for what I was doing just fell by the wayside. Just, it was obvious yeah. that that I knew what I was doing and I should just let, let, give myself permission to do it. So right. I was there to write, but on my fourth or fifth day, I said, do you mind if I move what I'm doing over into one of the studios because it looks like I'm going to be making a mess, you know. Right <laughs> here. And, I had, and I had paper and I had stuff strewn all over the place, and That's I had my great. laptop, so I would yeah. write, and then I would go and work on my, you know, collage work, and then I go back to yeah. write. Yeah. And it took me a couple of years before I actually it occurred to me that maybe the best way to get them off the floor and stop stepping on them was to put them in frames at which point Show the next i mean it's because so funny how part of our minds are hidden from you yeah. know, what we're consciously planning but you know and then yeah. i was like well i got them in a frame i might as well see what it looks like on the wall yeah and then i stepped back and said oh boy a group uh, of these makes an exhibition <laughs> no it took me a much much longer but but um it was you know it's more like i see what's going on here yeah 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 like in i'm content. actually yeah, yeah. I'm much more driven to do this than I thought. And I yeah. clearly want it to be good. Like, right, right. Like I hadn't really, I don't know. I don't even remember what my motives were when I was 20 years old, but I know now right. that I'm not going to do this unless I feel like putting the time and the care and right. the consideration to get it right, you know, to figure right. out the, the, the right way to do it. So it, you know, I put first put one on the wall in 2018. I next had someone. That's when I kind of rented this space in upstate New York. Yeah, I would say by the next year, I had a couple friends over to come see what I was doing. Right. By the year after that, both up to and even during the lockdown, the quarantine, um, I started to have like professional friends see yep. it like curator pals and yep. artist, mm-hmm. artist friends they would drop by and see what i was doing and then finally somebody said to me early in 2021 that what i should actually do is um propose a show to the lake george arts project which is yep. this town where i used to work and it was yep. where i curated my first exhibition yep. when i was 19 and wow. um and i just went to them and i was like hey you know me, I know you, you know, we're all part of this community now. Cause again, I'm, I'm back in my your old your stopping, stopping ground. Um, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And 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 they do know and didn't know who I was. And I'm like, so I've been doing this. And would you take a look? Because I think I've got enough for a show. Yeah. And within three days I had dates, you know, for, wow. for a show. And That's so impressive. I just well, it was a shortened show. It was only like 12 days, I think, in the end. It was sort yeah, of between yeah, yeah. it was like a a nexus but i i didn't 
it did, that really wasn't so important to me. Yeah, yeah. What I really wanted to do was just see if I could get them up on the wall, mm-hmm. invite people in to look at them and survive mm-hmm. the experience. <laughs> like if I, if I would actually not completely collapse have a psychic right. breakdown somewhere right. along the way. Like, could I actually go through with this? Right. And, and I, and I did, and I sold some pieces and I got some wow. good coverage and I thought, that's fantastic. Wow. This is really great. And people based on, you know, the hardest thing actually, Stephen was to share it on social media. Cause really? I, yes. Cause I use okay. Instagram, as you know, almost exclusively for sharing art sharing other people's art <laughs> sharing uh, well because i haven't yet evolved if that's the word developed this sort sure. of feeling that my sure. art is interchangeable with other people's art sure like there's sure, still sure, this sure. like i've never seen a collage of mine hanging alongside another artist's work i think mm-hmm. if that actually ever happened one day and i'm sure it probably will at some point i'm sure i would be more in this kind of thing of going oh okay i can treat it like art yeah, but but in terms of because I'm super curatorial about my right, like right, Instagram, right, right. so I'm like sort of like every time I think I'm going to post something of my own, I'm like, whoa, 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 wait, wait, hold on, you know, like yeah. let's think this through, right. <laughs> let's consider the alternatives. You have a new solo show coming up in July of this year in Chicago at Tony Fitzpatrick's The Dime on Northwestern Avenue near Humboldt Park. What can we expect to see in that exhibition? I'm, you know, I'm continuing mostly along the same lines. I mean, I think that I've, I've taken on a couple of very challenging pieces that mm-hmm. um, deal with, you know, sort of the idea of having a ground that's very elaborated and then right. having sort of lots of um, multiple points of detail, of interest, mm-hmm. and trying to make them all function together, try to make it like a field that's activated as well mm-hmm. as bring people in again and again so they can explore mm-hmm. the points of interest. You know, it's a technical problem, but I feel like, I mean, there's a certain point when you're working on your work in the studio, I'm sure all the artists have this, that you're really just right. solving uh, the next problem. You're kind of going, right. what would that look like? Or how would I do that? Or Right. Maybe I should try three different ways of getting that result and see what we're, you know, all, you know, you're just experimenting all the time. Yeah. And sometimes the way you're thinking of the work is, well, I just want to get it finished to see what it looks like. Yeah. Your work is pretty remarkable. It features a lot of vintage imagery, a rich color palette, plenty of media like acrylic found objects and more, and lots of text strips, headlines, if you will, that sit in tight grids, escape and bleed from grids that are very playful in many ways. Do you feel that the activity of making your work requires that buoyant sense of play? Tell us a little bit about your process. Well, I mean, the content of my work is more, believe it or not, it's more like like it's coming from a conservatorship okay. where, um, I mean, it grows out of having an archive where right. I have developed this archive, which I'm determined that will remain in the archives of American art when I'm no longer around. Good. And in developing the habits that one mm-hmm. needs to have a, a good archive relating to contemporary art, you know, those same habits when applied to you know, thrift store culture, junk, junk, you know, flea market culture, right, right, estate sale culture, what at country auctions, you know, anything that if right. you're the kind of person who gravitates to that 
aspect of, of sort of recycled Americana, right. which I am. Yeah, vintage. Yeah, exactly. You're, I mean, I'm not looking for furniture. I'm looking for stuff that speaks to me in a language that I almost understand, but it's mm -hmm. kind of like just sort of beyond my grasp. Mm -hmm. And I, I treat that material the same way I would treat an artist's kind of announcement where I look at the exhibition, like back when artists made building cards and sent them out for the exhibition. You know, right. And I, I, I say to myself, I don't have an archive of this artist's work. I'm not really particularly interested in this artist's work, so I'm not going to start an archive. But meanwhile, can I do something with the image? Is right. there a way that I can incorporate this image into some other format or some other context? Right. And that's where it gets interesting because I ended up cutting things up and using fragments of right. you know, fine art culture mixed with sort of vintage Americana culture. Right. And then I like this idea of the fragmentation pushing towards a whole, you know, pushing mm -hmm. towards some kind of um, mm -hmm. form that sort of steps in and, or, and mm -hmm. or emerges, you know, sort of out of this sort of swirl of fragmentation. So I guess yeah. it's playful, sure, because I think I'm, that's, that's the fallback from my own mind. That's the way I kind of sure. think. And I'm trying to amuse myself, you know, yeah, in some yeah. kind of like basic way. But right. I feel like I'm also trying to preserve something. I'm also trying, it's like a little bit like keeping a specimen in aspic, you know, yeah, for yeah, 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 future yeah. scientists to yeah, exactly. pick apart. Let's go over the monograph you wrote about Nicole Eisenman's paintings that was published late last year. Nicole was awarded the prestigious Guggenheim Fellowship, Carnegie Prize, and a MacArthur Fellowship, and has had numerous solo exhibitions in museums throughout the U.S. and Europe. Her work calls to mind everyone from Philip Guston to Katie Colwitz to Pablo Picasso and deals frankly and tragicomically about gender, sexuality, political inequity, good, evil, the panoply of human folly that we all fall into. How did you get involved in the writing of the book? Were you approached by the publisher, Eisenman's Gallery, or did you pitch it? Did it accompany an exhibition of her works? Yeah, no, it was a standalone, it's a standalone monograph. And yeah. I mean, I've been interested yeah. in Nicole Eisenman's work since the early 90s. And, yeah. you know, at a certain point, it just started getting extraordinary. It was always yeah, yeah. great, but then it, Absolutely. Then it went beyond great. And um, what happened was um, Barry Schwabsky approached me because he was working with a British publisher named Lund Humphreys, who were doing a series of books on contemporary painters. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, the way the series would be edited, um, each writer would get two titles, um, okay. no more than two. Um, and so I proposed Nicole's book and I proposed another artist and they accepted both. But then right. by the time Nicole's book was already in production, COVID had sort of uh, completely changed their business plan. And so they yeah, actually yeah, yeah, had yeah. to not do the second um, oh second book in the series. But no, so it's a, it's, you know, it's a book that, you know, took a couple of years to really develop with, you know, collaborating directly with the artist. Um, right. And I guess it's only now starting to get into stores uh, in the United States and like museum bookstores and places like that. Tell us a little bit about the rise of the Prospect New Orleans project. I think, I think the best way to think about it is the rise and the continuing rise um, right. of Prospect because they just finished um, the fifth edition um in january um, they did so prospect is 
Yeah, no, Prospect is thriving. Prospect is doing fantastic. I, I meant you. I meant your involvement in it is maybe what I was alluding to. I mean, it. I I can tell it's doing yeah. well, but I, I know that that there was a dynamic in sort of the body politic that helped to manage it and um, some well, of that I invented stuff. it. I'm the founder. I'm the founder of Prospect. Um, sure, of course, of course. And and Prospect started. I guess the seed of it happened just a few weeks after Katrina, um, right? Because I was I was just one of these people in the art world who knew New Orleans well. Like, you know, sure. for a bunch of reasons, including musical reasons, actually. Yeah. And people there started calling me because I was a New Yorker in the art world. And I right. had some, I don't know, I could be some kind of a bridge um, between Absolutely. what was happening there and, and the recovery effort and uh, sort of the art world, the New York art world as it is. Right. So that, that, you know, the floods happened at the end of 2005. I went there in January of 2006. Um, 2006, the, the germ of the idea, the idea of a biennial structure came right. then on that very first trip after Katrina in January of 2006. Right. But, you know, it took forever to figure out how I was going to do it. Um, right. One of the things that was most important was that we couldn't really fundraise locally. You don't do that in a disaster area, you know, right. you don't, all their, you don't all start your own are... not-for-profit right. alongside all these other cultural institutions that are just like flattened, right. that are just totally fucked up. Right. So, I mean, the, the model had to be based on the idea of, of tapping into national funding sources that, right. you know, had the funds available, but weren't necessarily partnering you know, directly with institutions in New Orleans. Right. So there was sort of a window of time. It was maybe about five years from 2006 forward where right. there were sort of funds available that we could tap into with right. several major national foundations, um, most of whom are still involved with Prospect to this day. Wow, um, So, yeah, the idea was just like, you know, the United States never really had an international biennial of its own. Yeah. And international art exhibitions in New Orleans went back to the, you know, mid-19th century, the 1860s. The in French Europe. colony so, days. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so it just felt like, well, this is a natural thing. The contemporary art world could use a boost um, in New Orleans, and the contemporary art world nationally would love a way of getting involved in the recovery efforts because no one had sort of made that connection. Absolutely. And as a curator, it's like sort of like, okay, well, then I get to curate an exhibition that yeah. I think is going to be citywide. And, yeah. you know, I, I had just been leading up to that. It's weird when I look back, but two years before Katrina, I had done the Istanbul Biennial, which was a citywide right. biennial. Um, and it requires a very specific way of working when you have mm -hmm. six or seven or eight venues, you know, in different parts of, of town yeah. and you have yeah. to keep tap, track of dozens That's and huge dozens management. of artists and yeah. projects. Yeah. But having done it, I knew it was possible. You know, I just was like, okay, it really depends on the team and the artists. And um, right. I mean, it was an amazing experience. I, I don't know if I'll ever have an experience quite as exciting um, right. in my professional career because it was one of those um, moments I think where you're you've got a possibility of taking a disastrous situation mm -hmm. and creating a kind of a pivot like a, mm -hmm. almost a jujitsu move where the mm -hmm. <laughs> powerlessness yeah. of your position becomes the way that you turn it to your own advantage oh, yeah, um, exactly. and we were like all right let's give New Orleans a new definition you know like let's say it's not the city that disaster 
yeah, down. It's not, let's say it's, it's not the a collection city. of victims. Yeah. Right. Let's say it's a city that reinvented itself through art. Let's let's try that image out um, right, right. and see if it floats. And I think we have. I mean, New Orleans is now considered a legitimate um, American center for contemporary art, and I think uh, Prospect is a big part of that. So I'm absolutely I'm happy. Um, absolutely. Are there artists? whose work you feel somehow got away or fell through the cracks of art history that you would like to reveal to curatorial peers, art critics, and share with wide audiences? Well, an artist who's, um, this isn't a, this isn't a hypothetical, this is a real. Um, and I mm -hmm. think because I'm not sure if, if actually millions listen to this podcast, so I think I'm okay sharing it with you right now. <laughs> well, one but, day. Um, well, one day, right. But maybe not this particular episode right, in the next right. few weeks. But it's about to become public that that um, uh, the artist Leandro Ehrlich, who I've had a long mm -hmm. collaborative mm -hmm. history mm -hmm. with, is going to have his first ever retrospective um, in wow. the United States, and it's opening wow. um, in early December at the Paris, right. the Mon Miami Art Museum. Wow. Uh, and I'm the curator of the show. It's something right. I've been working on for, I mean, I tried to do the show in one form at the Orange County Museum, which would have been right. like seven or eight years ago. And it right. just kept morphing and, and then it didn't exist for a little while. And then I right. did get to do an exhibition of, of Leandro's work at Malba, at the Modern Art Museum in Buenos Aires in 2019 mm -hmm. and at that point the discussions about bringing it to the united states became more serious franklin sermons the director of the of of pmam of paris mm -hmm. uh, modern mm -hmm. art museum went down to see the show and you know i think if if the pandemic hadn't happened we would have been doing this show a year ago right. but i think it's actually great now that, it, that it's happening at this point right so i mean i feel like that's an example for me of an artist who you know, most people in the art world like the work. Some people don't really take it that seriously, but I know that it's hard to put his career together because most people only know one or two pieces. You know, he's right, not really right. a, it's hard awesome. to make an exhibition. It's, it's very right. challenging work. So I feel like, all right, that's one of those cases where I'm finally going to be able to make that argument, that case in public. Right. But um, I have so many artists right now who I'm thinking of um, yeah, yeah, yeah. In, in those terms. And right. very often I'm trying, I'm developing a proposal. If I sure. find an institution, you know, that might be amenable, you know, to that kind right. of a idea. Now, Dan, you were recently awarded the Emily Hall Tremaine Journalism Fellowship for Curators. And in an article that covered the reveal of you and the four other recipients, it indicated that each would publish a few posts on the Hyperallergic Magazine website to essentially demystify your work as a curator. Can you give us the shorthand summary of what you think reveals the day in and day out of your work and approach? What are the commonalities among the award recipients last year and what were the big differences in their background and focus? Yeah, it's, it's based on this kind of ongoing fascination I have with the island of Chiloé. Um, okay. which is out, off the southwestern coast of Chile. Mm -hmm. And um, it's just this kind of magical sort of place. It's, it's right. kind of, it's quite rural and, right. and sort of marginal in terms of, you know, power and, and state control in Chile. It also has right. a little modern art museum that opened at the end of the Pinochet dictatorship. And wow. it's, it's, it's an extraordinary place. So I first went there, my first of five trips, I went there in 20. 
2015 for the first time, 2014 for the first time, um, kind of on a dare. I mean, I've been to Chile before, but um, an artist named Eugenio Dittborn, who's one of the grand sort of modern art living masters of Chilean art, on my very first trip told me I should go to Chile and go to this museum and do a show there, propose right. a show. And I was like, well, that's a great idea, but I don't think I could do that right now. <laughs> right, right. Years and years and years and years later, I finally get someone who says, well, I'd love to take you to Chile. My grandmother's from there. My family goes all the time. It's a great place to do wow. a sort of a, a rural biennial. So wow. that's what I thought I was going to do on my first trip and on my second trip. And by the third trip, I was thinking in completely different terms of trying right. to have like an island wide, almost a f extended festival of art. Right. Like a, right. Then, um, and then by my second to last trip in 2019, I had thought, you know what, th what this should be more about is just creating long-term initiatives on the yeah. island and just yeah, yeah, letting yeah. them go. And so I was kind of exploring the different corners and then came home. And then during the pandemic, a lot of the artists who I'd met along the way, the Chilote artists who live on the island, yeah, yeah. Yeah. We're like reaching out to me because New York was in the news because everybody here was seemed to be sick and dying, according to yeah, the media, yeah. you know, in other yeah. countries. And I was really, really moved by that show of, I don't know, compassion and concern yeah, sure. on their part. And I, I, it just hit me that it's like, wait a minute, I've been barking up the wrong tree all along. Everything I do in Chiloé should actually be about the artists who are there. Yeah, the, the the people who are already that that's that they that they need active. to be the focus yeah. of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the trip that the the Tremaine Grant um, paid for was actually an opportunity to go to Chiloé a fifth time and figure out how that works, how I would right. do that. So literally on day four, I found one program that I want that I decided to invest in, which is a small exhibition space, the Blue Chapel, La Capilla Azul, um, right. in a very, very remote corner of this island. Um, and it's going to be a sort of an both regional and international exhibition space, right? 600 square feet, maybe. Wow. Um, okay. And we're currently in the process of raising the money and the work's already started to restore it windproof it or weatherproof it, um, right. get solar panels, make sure there's not excess moisture. This is a very wet part of the world um, right, right. and start doing programs, um, start wow. doing exhibitions. And we'd like to be up and running by November of this year. So I was like, that's about local, like, like part of the mission statement for the like Capilla Azul is that every program will have a component that's Chiloé, that's, that's, right. that represents Chiloé. Yeah, um, exactly. That's fantastic. Um, so, so, yeah, so this is now an ongoing investigation. A few days later, I got involved in a second project, which is to help a lithographic studio that has run out of all their supplies. Um, oh, yeah, I saw that. And where is that? Where is yeah, that located? That's, that's in the city of Castro. That's in the it's main also, city, but on, it, the, on the island of Chiloé. Um, yeah, yeah. And yeah, this is one of these things where, yeah, all the supply, they were never replenished um, through mm -hmm. the pandemic and so everything's mm -hmm. run out at this place and it's you know they basically have a base of students and young people who want to learn how to make printmaking um, right. and they have great teachers and great equipment but they don't have the materials so we're just trying to and actually we, we've already raised about a thousand books for that today um, so we're going to be buying up a bunch of like 
stones and rollers and yeah. paper and ink uh, and shipping it down to, to Chiloé. Thank you so much for joining us today on Art World, Dan. We deeply appreciate it and hope to have you back sometime very soon. Listeners can learn more about Dan Cameron's work on his dancameron.art website or check out what he sees on Instagram at djbc1956. I'm your guest host, Stephen Wozniak, and thank you for listening to another podcast episode of 